Access more. How did a guy like Ken get a job working with the most famous band in the land? In this podcast, we get to hear from a man that really knew them behind the scenes. In this episode, you'll not only hear of how Ken got to London, but the impact of a non-Beatles song. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Hello and welcome to The Beatles, The Bible, and Beyond. I'm Brian Mason. Hi, I'm Ken Mansfield, and I was lucky enough to be handpicked by The Beatles to be their first U.S. manager of their new record company, Apple Records. Join us as we talk about the intersection of Jesus and music while sharing incredible stories from Ken's days in the music industry. This This is The Beatles, The Bible, and Beyond. Fascinating stories from Ken Mansfield, who actually worked with the Beatles. In fact, today we're going to talk about your first trip to London. This is a cool, this is a very cool trip. Your absolute first time. You're with Apple Records. You're the head of Apple Records in the United States, right? Well, yes and no. Okay. When I first came to London, I had worked with the Beatles over here uh, three different occasions, but I wasn't appointed the U.S. manager of Apple yet. I was being appointed. I was in the process of being appointed. I hadn't passed the audition yet, I guess you could say. After working with them on uh, two tours over here, and then the fact that I really thought someday I was going to end up working for them and with them, then didn't hear from them for two years, okay, I thought that was just a fantasy. But when they decided to set up Apple Records... Nobody knew that they were setting up Apple. Apple Records, they were with Capital in the U.S., and they were going to set up their own record label, which, what a great idea. So Apple Records was it. Right. Now, the thing that people don't realize, okay, the Beatles set up a record label. Okay, a lot of people set up record labels. Yeah. They would need to be distributed by somebody because they didn't have distribution. They had a label, but they didn't have distribution in America except the Beatles did through EMI, because EMI Capital distributed in America. But as a unit, they did not have a distribution system. So when they signed Mary Hopkin and James Taylor and stuff on Apple Records, they didn't have a distribution system. Okay, so everybody assumed that the Beatles' Apple Records would be on Capital, would be distributed by Capital. But the Beatles were able to and could negotiate with Columbia, with Warners, with anybody else for distribution of their labels. So we were in competition because everybody wanted to have the Beatles record label to distribute through the through the large companies. And we did have an advantage. Now, uh, to, to the average fan, yeah. this is all behind-the-scenes stuff because to the average fan who goes and buys... The Beatles records at this point is going to get an Apple record. They don't care who, who's distributed who's distributing by it. it. No. That's exactly yeah, right. Exactly. It's an Apple record. Yeah. Okay. But we had to compete just like everybody else. Yeah, and we, we had to make a distribution deal with them gotcha. for them to go through, because Capital Records was Capital Records and Capital Records distribution right. system. Right. So we did. We had to compete just like everybody else, except we did have a couple advantages. I would say first, almost foremost, that Stanley Gordico, who was the president of Capital Industries, was this incredible man. And they liked 
Stanley Gordico, Mr. Gordico, except they called him Stan. Now, it was you didn't call <laughs> Stanley Gordico Stan. You called him Mr. Gordico because of his prestige. The Beatles, freely from day one, Stan or Stanley, they called him that. They loved Stan. Lee Gordico. <laughs> 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 um, number two is they did have a relationship with the label. They had been there for a long time. And so they were used to EMI because they were EMI in, in, uh, in London, probably for the Europe, probably for the rest of the world. The other thing was that we had the one thing nobody else could offer the Beatles. We could offer the Beatles to be on Apple Records because they could have Apple Records, but the Beatles would be on Capitol Records. By making a deal for distribution, we allowed the Beatles to say they were on Apple Records. So now Apple Records was a label that had the largest band you know, in the world on their label. Mm -hmm. So they had a, a good start that way. Now, technically, they were still Capitol Records artists, but we were released them as Apple artists, and on the records themselves... I'm told that there's those little bitty markings and numbers. Those were actually capital's financial numbers, you know, that were assigned to the Beatles. Huh. But that was the one thing, because they were a major label with, with a major act right away starting. So that's how we got the deal. Okay, now, nobody knew that we had negotiated with Apple and made this deal. So they sent over Ron Cass and Paul and a schoolmate friend of Paul's that he'd grown up with. They were very loyal to old friendships. His name was Ivan Bond, and just for Ivan, his old schoolmate, to hang with. Ivan, didn't he introduce Paul to, to John? Yes, he to, was. To, That's right. To play with uh, the yeah. quarrymen, yes. didn't he? Yes, yes. Wow. That's uh, how far back that went. Way back, yeah. And Ivan was, just, Ivan was just this simple guy, and he just hung with Paul. They were just old, you know, friends. Yeah, just old buddies. They come over— we hold the final meetings. Now, nobody knew. There was myself and a few insiders at Capitol knew that the deal was made. Paul comes over with Ron Cass and Ivan and, and somebody else came over to announce it. And now we were having our national convention where that meant every person at Capitol Records, all the salesmen, all the field men, all the executives were going to be in one place at one time. During the national convention, Stanley Gordico had announced that we had a big special announcement for the convention. They had no idea. No idea. Nobody in the company. Wow. So we flew Paul in, and we snuck him into the country. Nobody knew he was in. <laughs> the convention was at the Century Plaza Hotel, a big convention room there, and put Paul up in a suite there for the day. And then Gordico comes out and says, now for our big announcement, I bring Paul from his room down to the back of the auditorium. And he said, we are taking on a new distribution system and we have one of the presidents here to announce it. And Paul starts walking from the back of the auditorium and they brought the stage lights up just very gradually. <laughs> he gets about a fourth of the way down the room and the guys are turning around looking and they're starting to see Recognize. Now, yeah, now this is 1968, so I mean, a Beatle was giant, you know? Wow. 
And they started recognizing who Paul was. Now, Paul's Paul, and he's smiling, and he's waving, and he's— He's the perfect uh, beetle to do this. he's high-fiving the guys on the aisle seats and pointing at him and smiling and doing what Paul does, you know. And who were the guys again? The guys were the salesmen, everybody. The guys who were making the Beatles in the United States. That's right. Yeah. They saw him, and he wasn't two-thirds of the way down the room, and it came to the point to where they were just yelling. I mean, (laughs) the applause, and they were standing up, and it just was like magic in the room. The thing that I don't think Paul realized at that point, because Capitol Records— you know, signed the Beatles. Capital had turned them down two or three times. They did. And we had had a lot of history of trying to break English acts, and we just couldn't break them over here. They'd be famous in England, just couldn't break them in America, you know. And we did. We did a great job with them. I mean, the Beatles would have been famous anyway, I think, but Capital did a great job in, in that. And they did such a great job that the salesman— Part of their income was how many records they sold to the record stores, et cetera, like that. So they got a percentage of their record sales. Right. Well, the record sales that the Beatles created went like 100 times beyond normal record sales. So everybody's salary, the salesman, went up like by 100 times. So Paul McCartney walking down there, down that aisle was the guy that bought them new cars, sent their kids to college, got them new homes, <laughs> paid for their vacations, you know, just changed their lives entirely. Oh, my goodness. And he's walking down sensing that these were the people that had really worked for him and the guys and stuff. So there was just this beautiful camaraderie there. Mutual admiration. Oh, it really was. It wasn't one way at all. Right. Paul gets up on the stage and announces that Apple Records is now going to be distributed by Capital, and the place just went crazy. (laughs) And I think that, for me, was, uh, I've been to major concerts, but I felt more emotion and more, you know, out of that one day. And it was just beautiful. And Paul, he just thoroughly loved it, you know. He really did. Now, your question was about, my first trip to London. While we're there, I had put Paul up in a bungalow, Beverly Hills Hotel, because he was going to be there for the convention, and we had some other things we did while I was there. When we got back to the hotel one day, uh, he said, I cannot believe what it's like to walk in front of <laughs> front door. front door of these <laughs> hotels. He says, for so long, we've been coming in from alleys and through the kitchens and up the back <laughs> elevators. And just to walk in, you know, and so we walk into the uh, lobby, and he walks up to the lobby desk and said, uh, do I have any messages? You know, just like <laughs> anybody else. It was just loving it. And there was a 12-year-old boy standing there with his mother, and the kid looks, and there's McCartney, and the kid goes, "Oh my, oh, oh, you're, you're, you're," and he's pointing at him, "You're, you're, you're," and Paul goes, "Stevie Wonder," and the kid <laughs> says, "Yeah, yeah, Stevie Wonder." You know, and the kid was so you know blown away, he couldn't, he he just uh, he took anyway. Stevie Wonder. Yeah, so okay, you're Stevie Wonder. So oh, anyway, great. we uh, go out to the bungalow, and mm. and we're just hanging around, and he's. He's uh, noodling on the guitar, and and, uh, and he says, so what do you think of this? Or 
uh, I was going to do this, uh, and I think he was working on like Ubla D, Ubla Da, and Back to USSR. It was a period when he was working on this group of songs. He was kind of asking my opinion. and Asking your yeah, opinion. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I love that. Me saying, uh, you know, sweater, I said, would coat be better? Or, you know, something, you know just whatever. I don't know. But it was, it was really just nothing more than that. But right. I get, I'm driving home on the... On Mulholland Drive that night, because I would go up to Mulholland Drive and then across and then back down to the Hollywood Hills where I lived, I thought, was I just songwriting with Paul McCartney? <laughs> and uh, so when the records came out that he whatever that night that we were working on. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Did you, check, I, well, you check I the credits? I didn't expect for it to say Mansfield <laughs> McCartney or anything right. like that. But uh, Anyway, during the visit, he had worn, uh, that was when we were all kind of wearing these medallions and stuff, you know, and during this uh, 68, hippie, eight, 68 hippie thing. And uh, he had this thing on a chain, a medallion, and I had I had admired it. it was, I thought it was really neat. Oh, and then while we're there, Linda shows up on the scene. And this was just the very beginning of their relationship. Linda Eastman. Linda Eastman. We're in the in the bungalow, and uh, there's a knock on the door. In fact, that was the same night, the, the same night. Paul had gone down the hallway in the suite to use the restroom or something, and so I answered the door, and it's Linda Eastman. And she says, is Paul here? And, I, and she's looking over my shoulder either way, you know. And I said, well, started to say, who are you? Paul comes out of the other end of the suite, and she sees him. She's over the top of me. She knocks me like a Notre Dame football tackle, just <laughs> knocks me out of the way, grabs Paul, and the door shuts, and they're gone. So I hung around for about an hour thinking that I had another idea for Ubaldi, Ubaldi, or something. I, I knew Paul wanted to hear it. <laughs> that could have changed history. Then finally, it kind of started getting late, and that's when I left, and that's when I had my epiphany yes. that maybe I'd had it written. <laughs> so anyway, it came time to put Paul on the plane, and now it was Paul and Linda uh, putting on the plane. We get to LAX, and in those days, at the top of the escalators and stuff, before we went to the gates, they had these little hot dog stands. And that was so guys could just come and grab a hot dog real quick and eat if they're in a hurry and stuff like that. So Paul was hungry, and Linda said she wanted to take some pictures because she was a photographer. And uh, we went to get a hot dog. So we're standing at the hot dog thing, and, of course, our back is just f facing out. We're just facing the wall where the uh, little counter is, and we're eating our hot dogs, so nobody even knew that a beetle was there. Now, I had mentioned to Paul during our conversation that I'd never been to London, and someday I really hope I get to come to London and Europe and all that. And he turns around, and he says, here, you like this medallion. I want you to have it. He and took it, it off. And his... He took it off and put it around wow. my neck. Wow. And then he said, the next time I see this, it better be in London. <laughs> wow. And, and, I mean, that was just... I don't know. <laughs> so after he got back, like three days later, I get a call from Mr. Gordico, calls me upstairs and said— Who's your boss at Capitol? Yeah. The boss. The, the boss. The man. Yeah. Not Stanley. It was it's Mr. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> calls me upstairs and said that Ron Cass had called from Apple and that he and Paul would like me to come to London to help finish setting up Apple Records. 
Now, I'm being brought over as my position as national promotion manager. Now I was head of all promotion, all the 50 men in the field, and the head of artist relations. So that's why I was spending so much time with Paul, because that was my, my, my assignment at Capitol. When I get there, now there's these famous pictures of us in the hotel suite. Here's the richest band in the world and the biggest, most EMI and Capitol Records, and we're crammed in this little bitty suite, you know. Not only the four Beatles, but Stanley Gordicole and Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall and Larry Delaney, the head of press and publicity at Capitol, also joined us. Peter Asher, I mean, we're in this room just crammed together. I thought, it seems like we could afford a, a bigger suite than this, you know. <laughs> I think in part it was intentional because it put us, if you see like pictures, I'm Ringo and I and Paul are just on top of each other, Shoulder, you know. Shoulders, yeah. Yeah, we really are. And they had this thing very thought out. And I think they were sh- trying to establish an intimacy from the start. Now, we had the Apple meetings, and they showed up. Like when I worked in the space industry with almost like the guys with the polyester white shirts and the little plastic (laughs) things to hold their pens in and with their notebooks, I mean, on time, you know, I Mm -hmm. thought, this is amazing. But they were really serious about Apple. They had become as famous. There was nothing left for them to accomplish in their line of work. They've done no, everything there was to do in their in their line. How do you become more number one? How do you sell more? You know, there was nothing for them to. But their boss, their 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 manager Brian Epstein had died the year the summer before. Yeah, and so now they're pretty much on their own, left to their own devices. Right. So right. if they wanted to slack off and take the summer off or do whatever they wanted to do, they could have done it. But for what you're saying, yeah. they got disciplined. They got their schedules on time. Yeah, their schedules. They always call them schedules. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I'd come back. The guys back in, in in America when I'd walk in the tower, you know, they <laughs> uh, I, they knew I was kind of the hot dog of the company anyway. And so now I'm with the Beatles, and I'd come back and I'd start saying words like schedule, <laughs> and they would just look at me like, "Oh my gosh, Mansfield, You're you know, great. You, okay." Any, anyway, they hired Ron Cass to be president. They would not replace Brian as manager. They had this loyal to Brian that they could never have another Brian Epstein. They could never have another manager so they could have a company and have a president, which was the same thing by Ron Cass running the, the, the company. But they were now businessmen, and they really loved that, and they were serious about it. The attitude was They ask questions, like really important questions. We really plan things out. We set up things during those meetings. It was an exceptionally successful business trip. And I've never worked with bands that were serious about what they were doing, like the the Beatles were. I get back to America, and that's when Gordico now gets the next call, that they want me to be the U.S. manager. They want me to run the company in America. And then the next thing came out of that was I was the personal liaison between them. If they wanted something, they called me in America. So that kind of really deepened our personal relationship, and we had a business relationship now. When did you get the orders of, can you do whatever you want? We're not even going <laughs> to look at your expense reports. We don't care where you are. But yeah. what did they tell you, 50%? I'll, I'll let you tell it. But. No, 
This is like God telling you, hey, Ken, you do anything you want, and no matter what you want, it's okay with me, you know? Yeah, Because yeah. uh, it was coming from the top. You know, Capital was the biggest record company at the time. We had all the most famous artists. But I'm called upstairs now, and the Beatles have asked me to be the U.S. manager. The Beatles were 50% of Capital's income. Now, one band was 50% of our income. Now, if you have any kind of corporation, you don't want to have one client. It's oh 50% of your income. You don't want to have no. one company or, you don't. you know, that's too many eggs in your basket or too much, you know. Yeah. So it was very scary for capital. So I was called upstairs and they said, the Beatles have asked for you to be the U.S. manager of Apple. So Stan called, talked to me. Mr. <laughs> Stanley. Stanley, Mr. Gordon. <laughs> he said... Let me just put it this way. When it comes to the Beatles, Ken, there is no margin for error. That's all I need to tell you. No margin for error. Now I'm sent to Bob Young, who is the general manager, uh, next in command under Stanley Gordico. He said, okay, Ken, you can go where you want to go. You can do what you want to do. You can spend what you want to spend. You will not be asked any questions on your expenses, on where you are, as long as you keep it together with the Beatles. So I expected next for Glenn Wallach, who owned you know, the whole shebang, to call me next, because I already was told there was no margin for error and that I had to keep it together. But I was given a free ticket to do whatever I wanted to do. Whenever, you know, wherever. Whenever, wherever. Later on, we can talk about another trip with them where, like, Paul just called and said, I want to see Ken in London tomorrow. Bam, there I go. So, Kent, spiritually, what's happening to you during this time? Where are you? I am in a place where I grew up with such strict religious upbringing, and everything was so confined, and everything was a sin— and now I'm sitting here to where Lewis and Idaho was this place where I was a sinner and I was restricted. And now I'm in London and I don't have to tell anybody what I'm doing. And I had this sense of freedom. I had this sense of really having turned my back on God even more because what could be better than this? It certainly was a miles better than what I'd been offered growing up, and I think it hardened me towards God because nothing about what I'd been taught about God brought me any joy. And now here I was, I mean, this was incredible what was going on in my life, and I was in my late 20s. I had earlier on in life, and this is going back to my youth, I remember our house was down this, this dirt road about a quarter of a mile from the nearest neighbor. We really were out in the country. And I was under all this, this upbringing. And I can remember as like a 12-year-old boy or whatever I was, I was stopping at that road in the middle of it and looking out across this vast expanse of wheat fields and stuff. And what I was being taught, I just remember looking out across that wheat field and I thought, I'm going to get out of here someday and I'm not going to do any of that stuff. It's going to be about me. I'm not going to, I don't want to hurt anybody, but it's me. That's what it's going to be. And for somehow I planted that seed 
deep inside of me so that when I came to a point like with the Beatles, being all about me was really easy, really easy. I think a blessings, I was being truly blessed in some ways, was also the hardening of my soul against God. But on the other hand, you had a mother yeah. that prayed for you yeah. for 30 years. Yeah. You and your brother, yeah. who, who finally saw you come to faith in yeah. Jesus before she died. Yes. Um, and I, I, we don't have a lot of time, but, but, but wrap that up quickly if you can. Well, I can't do it too quickly because it was such a big part of my life. But my mom, they were uh, Baptists, and my mom and dad, and they went to this little Baptist church. My brother and I both left home and went our own ways. And I had my guru during this time, and I was, you know, this hippie for times. And I'd come come home to Idaho and have all these different things I've, I felt. And I was still obedient when I was in home. And my folks went to church every Sunday, and so when I was there, I honored my mom and dad. I went to this little Baptist church with them, and it was about 30 people. And my mom and was just praying for my brother and I, because neither one of us were had accepted the Lord at all. And I would go to this little church, and they would do the service, and uh, then at the end of the service, they're Baptists, so they do... The call, you know. Altar call. Yeah. Well, there were 30 people that had been going there for 30 years, and they all were, <laughs> were saved. So there's this one guy sitting in the, in the congregation. And they would do I Surrender All for half an hour just trying to get me to come. And my mom sitting there, just you could just see just praying so hard, you know. And I wasn't going to do it. And I thought once, well, maybe I should just step forward and say I accept and just to do it for my mom. But I thought, you know, God's certainly not going to honor a big lie like that. So she never gave up praying for my brother and I for 30 years. She became incredibly ill the last 10 years of her life. She was bedridden. She was in a horrible pain. She just was really, it was awful. My brother and I came to Christ in the same year. Of course, as a dutiful son, every year I would go um, visit my folks, and uh, they were still doing the uh, I Surrender All bit. But they also, one of the times I went, the pastor and his daughter sang the song as a duet, How Great Thou Art. And it was so touching that even as a non-Christian, it really touched me. And I told my mom, I said, that song is so beautiful. I love that song, and I think she really took that as good. There's some maybe a little ground being made here. But what happened then, every time I went back to Lewiston to go to church, the daughter and the pastor would sing that duet, How Great Thou Art. So it's just become something that I very much identified with my mom. Well, after I was saved and she passed away, I was living in Nashville at the time, and I was in New York for a month living in a hotel on a project up there, and I was by myself. And on Sundays, I would go to a church called the Times Square Church. And it was a church that was very large. It was an old historic theater. On each side of the, of the stage, the big stage, there was a wall, you know, that went full width of the auditorium. And when the people came in, they would go to that wall, a lot of them, and pray into the wall. And just like uh, the Jewish ceremonies of going to the wall and, and praying at the wall. So when you walked in, there was just like this heavy murmur 
going on, and it just the minute you sat down, this this was just something that just filled you with the Holy Spirit. And I got so deep into listening to that and the fact it was Mother's Day. And I just started missing my mom and the fact that I'd come to the Lord because of her praying so hard. And I was just so deep in my thoughts and my missing her. And while I was doing that, the choir had come out on the stage. My head's down. I'm not seeing anything. The murmur's there. I don't hear anything. And they opened up with how great thou art. <laughs> and it was just like my mom had wrapped her arms around me and said, I'm still with you. I'll always be with you. Mm. It was just God's way of letting us know that how beautifully he orchestrates things and how beautifully he puts us into each other's lives. It's just sometimes you just need God to re remind you that, that he's here with you. And he did that day. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you not only being a part of this season, but also this tribute to our friend, Ken Mansfield. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode of Ken's Incredible Stories. 